Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. In the last episode, I explained a long list of ways in which consciousness has changed under capitalism. Most of these consciousness changes can be understood within social psychology. In this episode, I shall do something very different and explore a single aspect of consciousness. I'm choosing the topic of death potential, which is not a psychological trait, but a mythological and metaphysical category. Moreover, it is archetypal and universal, and therefore is not unique to capitalism at all, but exists within our consciousness across its whole history. It so happens, however, that the immense technological powers of capitalism constellate this death potential in the most intense manner yet experienced by our species. This distinguishes it from Freud's notion of the death instinct. I do not believe that such an instinct exists in the human psyche, but I do believe that mankind has a tremendous fear of death, which is repressed, becomes intolerable, and is then projected outwards. I also believe that the whole perinatal period, that is, the period around birth, in the womb, actual birth, and immediate post-birth, can be an intimate, dramatic, sometimes traumatic encounter with the forces of death that can deeply shape human character. In other words, our entrance into consciousness is through the gates of potential death. For anyone who wishes to understand more of this, not from the speculative, removed, philosophical perspective, such as the works of Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s, for example, but from the point of view of the clinician in depth psychotherapy, you may refer to the extraordinary work of Stanislav Grof. This is complex and deep territory, but I hope this episode stimulates further exploration of this fascinating topic. The mythological focus of this episode is on chapter 3 of Genesis in the Judaic and Christian scriptures. There are also references to the fruit of the tree of knowledge being a symbol for the birth of consciousness and for the tree of life being a symbol of transcendence. These symbols are explained in more detail as the podcast progresses. So let us begin. In the Hebrew Bible, when Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden for taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge, there is a fear that they could now also take the fruit of the tree of life in the centre of the garden, that is, gain immortality and become as gods. But following this mythological way of thinking, I suggest this cannot happen until death is overcome in the fallen state. Only when mankind is fallen into its separate individualised consciousness, separated from the totality, banished from the garden, do we face our fallen nature, our vices and appetites? Consciousness and its enormous powers are a temptation to achieve dominance over the earth and all living creatures. This consciousness leads to the creation of vast economic systems for the accumulation of wealth and the invention of weapons. However, these systems provide not only material abundance, but have the capacity to destroy life on earth, 
certainly the death of our species. Human consciousness can self-destruct, constituting not a death instinct, but a death potential within consciousness itself. To overcome this apocalypse, humankind must heal this wound of separation and death and face its own destructiveness. The tree of life, interpreted materialistically, not spiritually, then becomes possible. A vast period of time might then be available to the human species if it overcomes the death potential in its own consciousness, which is now constellated. We face, therefore, the largest hurdle since the birth of our consciousness, the overcoming of our destructiveness, selfishness and evil. Evil in the sense of life-destroying. If this hurdle is crossed, then humanity enters a new era and will spread out beyond this planet, which means that the tree of life will have been reached in overcoming death of our species and the transcendence of our earthly home becomes possible with a new super-consciousness capable of leaving this planet and existing beyond it, a second bite of the apple, so to speak. Humankind faces a species threat via a number of routes, including the world economic machine destroying the ecology of the planet and the technologies produced by the Enlightenment and Capitalist Project destroying not only human civilization but even all life on Earth. The conquest of the Great Mother, nature, becomes self-defeat. Extinction threats are not new. 99.9% of every species that has evolved on this planet is extinct. There have been at least 15 mass extinctions in the last 500 million years, shortly after multicellular life emerged. In five of these, at least 50% of the life on Earth became extinct in a geologically short period of time. This can occur from meteorites, volcanic eruptions, poisoned oceans, methane eruptions, rising sea levels and the like. There is another extinction event currently on the Earth called the sixth extinction event, but it is anthropogenic since it is humans who are destroying the planet's life and can now terminate themselves. A reduced impact scenario is that a proportion of the human race is wiped out and survivors reorganise their existence. This possibility is consistent with a neo-Malthusian harsh vision where the demands of the human race cannot be matched by Earth's resources or its ecology. It's also consistent with one interpretation of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where after famine, plagues, wars and the annihilation of most of the human race, select survivors enter the kingdom of heaven as the chosen ones. For those of us who find such a prospect horrifying, then we might contemplate how we have eaten, killed for pleasure, and are sending rapidly to their extinction a great number of the species on this earth. The supreme irony of the current prospect of our own species being similarly treated, is that we are doing it to ourselves. As we have traumatised other species, so shall we be traumatised. A 
until we extend an ethic to the whole of life, including animals and the unborn of our own species, who we also terminate at will. So shall we be treated. It is quite likely that in the event of a mass extinction event, caused, for example, by nuclear error, terror or warfare, that the conditions of the remaining survivors would be very primitive and precarious. The most optimistic scenario is of a whole country, and therefore possibly a civilization surviving, for instance in a relatively isolated island like Iceland, New Zealand, Madagascar, or a whole continent like Australia, with self-sufficiency, or something like it, already in place, and which survives the terrible events. It is perhaps possible that such a reduced, fortunate, though traumatised population could reorganise itself in the light of a new vision of human existence. Instead of happily inflicting pain and death on other species, Homo sapiens may avoid extinction, but experience a death of at least a portion of its own species. That presumes optimistically that there will be survivors of the coming events. In other words, mankind must overcome death in order to pass to the next stage of its evolution. Most of the paradigms that govern our collective existence, according to this radical position, will disappear. The idea that we will simply continue as we are doing with our deep, destructive, compulsive economic greed on the one hand and our national chauvinisms on the other is naive in the extreme. Nevertheless, self-renewal in this world is possible. It would, of course, be infinitely preferable that our species awakens to its imminent danger and changes in the light of the knowledge available to it and a new vision becomes available. This means that we might pass through the trauma of the near death of our species to awaken to the simple truth that this earth is the most beautiful and wonderful mother we could have, and that acting as delinquent psychopaths is no way to behave with nuclear weapons in our hands. In this life, in this fallen or separated state, we must overcome death, the terrible destructiveness in ourselves. Carl Jung commented that that which is not recognised within must be encountered as external fate. This psychological truth has to be extended when we deal with social, political and economic systems. When we cannot take responsibility as a society or civilization for the destructiveness of our economic systems, for example that of capitalism, then we suffer the consequences externally, degraded environments, extinction perils and warfare. However, we require much more than a change in attitude or belief. We require an overhaul of the economic, political and social systems that underpin, stimulate and maintain our destructiveness. It is clear that practically no economy on earth is willing to forgo its obsession with economic growth. And since it is this economic growth that is so destructive to the planet, then we must face the traumatic consequences. While vested interests engage in outright denial, the global educated community has known for some time the seriousness of the ecological crisis, for example. 
yet this information has been suppressed, ignored or disputed. When reports of the oncoming ecological problems due to carbon emissions, largely from fossil fuels, are published, up to now they have never persuaded governments to actually reduce these emissions. No economy apparently is going to leave oil, gas or coal in the ground for the sake of humanity and forego its own national interest to exploit these resources. Our national economic systems are inherently self-centred and will only change if we feel some imminent threat to our own survival. However, this short-terminism is of no use with respect to pollution, rising sea levels, greenhouse gases and the like, since these are long-term impacts on the environment. In any case, there is little commitment, even in the short term, to reduce these pollution levels that are causing such severe ecological changes. Our consciousness, in the form of science and technology, serves our appetites in the shape of political power and economic greed. We are not capable of deep learning except through harsh, even traumatic experience. No amount of theoretical knowledge changes our economic disposition to wreck the planet and destroy other life forms. There is a tremendous destructive aggression, therefore, in the unconscious of our species that is directed to other human beings and to nature. Mankind, locked in fierce nationalisms, religious differences, competitive economic and military systems, slumbers towards auto-annihilation. On this dark, apocalyptical subject, I wrote a poem in The Sower and the Seed as follows. Mankind is full of conflict, forever passions slave. Swayed by anger or by fear, we never cease to crave. The animal within us, it suffocates our heart. We have to feed it every day. It might tear us apart. Thinking is our special gift, designed to take control. Scientific argument says reason is our goal. In spite of best endeavours, of law, of church and state, the savage that's inside us all so quickly turns to hate. If this is all that humans have, just appetite and reason, we won't be here for very long beyond the nuclear season. The rivalry of nation-states will have had its day. Sunless winters will ensue. Earth's life will soon decay. A trauma awaits the human race. The sands are running fast. Our species will reduce its size. Our world, it will not last. Extinction though we may escape, but horror is at hand. Survivors shall a dark age face. Death will stalk the land. What then? Perhaps we start anew. Fresh principles required. Foundations strong must then be built, or time will have expired. There will be myths of some dark past, when fire and water reigned, when humans near destroy themselves, their shadow uncontained. These are the times we live in, our fate is self-imposed. We're clearly so unconscious, our dangerous shadow grows. 
Unless we readjust our aims from short-term finite goals, we're damned within our appetites. We're doomed without our souls. This precious earth we cannot save, only with our mind. We limit our intelligence when soul is left behind. We need a greater vision. New leaders are required. It's economic greed and power by which we are inspired. There's little time to change this now. We've plundered all the earth. See our darkness, know our fate. Through death, seek our rebirth. This planet is our paradise. So much has been destroyed. Reveling in aggression still, the balance finely poised. The sower casts the seed far wide. The cosmos has a soul. This seed is planted in our breast. It's there to make us whole. Nevertheless, a personal individual quest for spiritual truth is the eternal prerogative of all mankind. I will now examine the book of Genesis from a mythological and psychological perspective to see its views on these matters. After the creation of light, the world, and Adam and Eve, and after all was found to be good, the serpent, chapter 3 of Genesis tells us, tempts Eve with the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, which is the only tree that she and Adam are forbidden to touch on pain of death. The serpent, however, assures Eve that on eating this fruit, ye shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. After eating the fruit, God next banishes them from the garden. Adam and Eve fall from the garden of paradise into this earth, a state of labour and death. The Bible reads, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Chapter 3 of Genesis continues. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the Tree of Life. So as far as I can see, there are at least four puzzles in this story of the origins of humanity. The apple, the banishment into a state of death and labour, the Tree of Life and why we are blocked from reaching it. I speak as one brought up in the Christian traditions, but also as a Jungian analyst, and am acutely aware of the symbolic nature of these narratives, that is, symbolic of human consciousness. These mythologies are narratives by consciousness about itself. Firstly, what is the apple? 
although Jewish and Christian tradition often thought of this as a symbol of sexual intercourse, this interpretation is a result of their sexually repressive traditions. The apple is part of the tree of knowledge, that is, knowledge of good and evil, and therefore represents consciousness. Why? Because the world's creation myths are not about the physical beginnings of the world or cosmos. They are a narrative about the birth of consciousness. For an excellent account of this, from the viewpoint of Jungian psychology, you may refer to Eric Neumann, The Origins and History of Consciousness. In other words, the Genesis story is a creation mythology, a Judaic version of the birth of our consciousness. It indicates that the entrance into consciousness is a separation from a primal unity and a fall into a lower state. We can find similar ideas in Plato, who wrote in his book The Phaedrus that our souls originate in some anterior world of light and descend into this lower world where we practically forget the light, the divine, the world of transcendent forms. Hence his great metaphor of the cave of human consciousness with the shadows on the wall and of someone being taken out into the world of light and only then realising the illusory nature of human consciousness within the cave. Psychologically speaking, the fruit is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is therefore our consciousness. Understood psychologically, the movement into consciousness is a death of the previous state of oneness and participation mystique as humans fall into a state of differentiation and ego subjectivity. We are left in little doubt. This is the movement into consciousness since the apple is found to be good, it gives wisdom and Adam and Eve are especially aware they are naked. So they are now acutely self-aware whereas previously they were in a state of unconsciousness and not aware of themselves as separate beings. Secondly, why is humanity banished into a state of death and labour. In the Garden of Paradise, in our primal state, there is at first only participation, union and oneness, no death awareness. It is only consciousness that becomes aware of death. The descent into the world of consciousness is into the world of labour and death. Our consciousness obliges us to struggle in the world, to protect ourselves to reproduce, to avoid, postpone or even to try to overcome the death that haunts us. Our awareness of death is consequent upon our emergence into our consciousness. We are the only creature aware of it. We are an animal dominated by death awareness. Our entrance into consciousness means that we are condemned to labour in an effort to escape death, which is impossible. We are thus caught in endless toil, since for the most part we tend to ignore and deny this death awareness, we repress it into the unconscious, where it therefore operates with greater power and is projected out in fear and attack upon other humans, nature and our world. Psychologically this is 
the fall into consciousness. What Genesis tells us is that humans fall into a profound ambivalence. On the one hand, their reason, their knowledge of good and evil, their consciousness has godlike properties. On the other hand, they have been cast into an awareness and deep fear of death. On this deep division and ambivalence, the human psyche has been poised since its inception and throughout its whole history. This is an archetypal representation of the dilemma of human consciousness, its godlike reason and its fear of death. Thirdly, what is this mysterious tree of life? Since creation myths are symbolic narratives concerning the birth of consciousness, this remarkable development within the Judaic creation myth indicates, in my view, that there exists in the human psyche a transcendental connection which gives us a totally different conception of reality. This is a tree of eternal life and is a state of enlightenment, a deathless state which transcends all divisions of our normal consciousness and connects humans to a transcendental plane. Fourthly, there is a reference that mankind, by eating of the tree of knowledge, has become godlike. In obtaining knowledge of good and evil, there is something godlike in our consciousness. However, God fears that humanity, Adam and Eve, might next eat of another tree in the garden, the tree of life, by which humanity might live forever, that is, be eternal, and therefore be as himself. This is an extraordinary development. So there is not one tree in the garden that was untouchable, but two, the second being greater than the first. This second is the tree of eternal life, which is only mentioned after the fruit of the tree of knowledge has been known. Mythologically, this refers, in my view, to the deep intuition that our emergence into consciousness has a number of deeply ambivalent properties and possibilities. First, as mentioned, there is the dilemma of a divine rationality, yet the inevitability of individual extinction. Secondly, there is the awareness of a deathless, eternal component of our consciousness, the tree of eternal life. And yet we are barred from connection to it, the flaming sword east of Eden. Our normal consciousness tends to block this other transcendent side of our psyche to prevent us reaching it, as the Eastern traditions have made so clear. Our ego consciousness not only represses into the unconscious our anxieties, traumas and complexes, it also represses the transcendent within us. The ego is a great filter of the rest of the psyche, including its spiritual nature. For a contemporary version of this dichotomy in the two hemispheres of the brain, you may refer to Ian McGilchrist, the master and the emissary. Therefore, in Genesis, the banishment from the Garden of Eden can be interpreted as a fall into ego consciousness and the subsequent block to the transcendent. In the history of Homo sapiens, 
that is, subsequent to the emergence of our consciousness. All our religions, spiritual movements, mystical experiences and religious inquiries are attempts to connect back to that transcendent part of our psyche, which we know exists, whose presence we feel and of which we dream. We continually try to reach the tree of eternal life, or sometimes it tries to reach us. A major difference between the West and the East has been that the East, on this matter of transcendent knowledge and experience, has devoted itself to its realisation in this life. They have attempted to disarm the barrier of the flaming sword by dismantling the ego, that is, our differentiated consciousness. They have attempted the heroic task of realising the deathless state in this life. The tree of life, eternal life, is the possibility of transcendence, here and now, on this earth and in this consciousness. The reason why Adam and Eve are prevented from reaching the tree of life is that they, the human race, must pass through death consciousness, the fallen state, before enlightenment is possible. We have in the 20th and 21st centuries reached this decisive point in our evolution, since we can destroy all human and perhaps all other life on this planet. We are now on the verge of possible extinction and the death potential in our consciousness may now be realised by the technologies we possess. Since we repress our anxiety of death and commit ourselves to be the illusory master of this earth, to achieve the economic heights, to conquer disease, extend our lifetimes, to be godlike in our technologies, to leave this earth and claim dominion of the planets, to abort life at will, to do as we see fit with no restraint or awareness of other species, the sacredness of life, the miraculous gift of this extraordinary creation, although it has evolved, to interfere profoundly with the processes of life, then we must project the repressed fear of death that is within us onto nature, the earth, other species. We become the inflictors of death on the world that has created us. The creature of the planet thinks it is the master, much as McGilchrist argues that the emissary, the left hemisphere, takes over from the master, the right hemisphere. Only if we can pass through the gates of death and find a solution to our darkness can we achieve a transcendental connection to our destiny, the tree of life, the deathless state. If we don't examine and deal with this death potential within us, our darkness, our shadow, our negativity, then we will continue to project it outwards and destroy the basis of our own life. The ten horsemen of the apocalypse, as I have called them, the multidimensional crises of the 21st century that are now being unleashed, are, every one of them, our own creation. The full quote from Carl Jung, writing of the shadow in Aeon, volume 9b of his collected works, referred to earlier, says, quote, 
The psychological rule says that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outsider's fate. That is to say, when the individual does not become conscious of his inner opposite, the world must perforce act out the conflict and be torn into opposing halves. Unquote. This observation, usually applied to individuals, can also be applied to the collective. As long as we deny death, as long as our consciousness insists on being the arrogant master, it will inflict death on the rest of the world and even beyond. It will project its conflicts outwards instead of dealing with them in its own psyche. It will thus be the creator of its own death. It was Robert Oppenheimer who masterminded the creation of the first nuclear bomb and ended the Second World War. He recalled that at its first testing on July the 16th, 1945, the words of Vishnu in the Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita, came to him, and these capture this darker aspect of our psyche. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Although human consciousness has evolved out of this planet, it has been shaped through and through by the universal cosmic archetypal forces of creation and destruction. Again, it has been Hindu mythology which has most understood this. I recommend to you, the listener, that on a search engine you find an image of the Nataraja, the dancing Shiva. Wikipedia has some very good ones. And my favourite is the one at the CERN Laboratory. This statue image is worth a great deal of contemplation. It carries these opposites. In one hand is the drum that brings creation into existence, and in the other is the fire that destroys it. These are godlike forces in the human psyche that can both create and destroy. But the brilliance of this image is not only in the portrayal of this balance of opposites that characterises both the cosmos and the human psyche, for Shiva, in a dancing yogic position, balances on top of the mighty dwarf, who is the human ego. Also that the hair or headdress of the Shiva streams out to the edge of creation, which is portrayed in most statues as an outer circle that is the edge of the universe, the space-time-energy continuum. Thus, everything I am saying is contained in one image. The ego must not be the master. It is the godlike capacity in the human psyche to realise the opposites that dominate it and transcend the ego. By its visionary capacity, yogic, mystical, higher, streaming out to the edge of creation, our consciousness can transcend the mighty dwarf with its appetites, passions, compulsions, fears and repressions and humbly reach to the cosmic limits that are available to us.